Welcome to the CMS Real Deal podcast, where we take a step back from the legal nitty gritty and provide insight into issues affecting the property industry. I'm your host, Danny Drummond-Bressington. Today, I'm joined by Julie Gatenio, partner in the Real Estate Disputes team, and Glenn Flannery, partner in our restructuring team. They're here today to discuss the important topic of tenant insolvency processes. As restrictions are slowly lifted and we approach what has been called the cliff edge at the end of June when all the moratorium are due to be lifted, the true impact of the pandemic will probably start to become apparent even more so than it is now. With that, I think there is unfortunately an expectation of more insolvencies on the horizon, just to add to the number of high profile ones that we've had in the last year. So it's timely that Julie and Glenn are joining us. I'm going to start with you, Glenn, if I may, because um, obviously as a restructuring partner, um, you're likely to be at the coalface of um, many restructuring proposals coming through. So really, are you anticipating seeing an increase in insolvencies in the second half of, of this year? Thank you, uh, Danny. Um Yes, I think um, broadly speaking, uh, we are. We've um, we've already seen uh, a huge amount of uh, restructuring activity uh, in the market already. But I think, as you've alluded to, perhaps not uh, as much as um, would have otherwise been the case uh, as a result of the government measures um, that have been introduced to um, help mitigate the impact of the the pandemic on um, struggling businesses. So um, yes, I think there is still uh, a lot more to play out here. Uh, particularly as we draw closer to those measures being uh, withdrawn. Uh, as you've mentioned, um, the measures that have been in place have included the uh, moratorium on landlords taking forfeiture action for non-payment of rent uh, and restrictions on winding up action being taken where financial difficulty is pandemic related. Uh, and together, those measures have uh, allowed a lot of tenants to avoid paying rent without there being significant repercussions. Uh, but when those measures are withdrawn, uh, I think those businesses will be under much greater threat of enforcement action from landlords uh, and from other creditors, and they will need to take steps to protect themselves. Yeah, I think um, uh, I, I fear you're right there, Glenn, because I think it's going to depend on how the government lift the moratorium. And that's obviously a, a topic of huge debate and one that we don't have any answers to at the moment. It's just pure speculation. I guess um, turning to you, Julie, I mean, a lot of the debate has been around you know, the pr- restructuring proposals that have been coming forward are sort of landlord focused. Um, so so what is it that makes these landlord focused and, and how are landlords being treated comparable to other creditors in the CBAs that we saw last year? Thanks, Danny. Well, I, I think um, the, the CBAs that we've seen over the last few years have um, sort of evolved into what we've called the landlord-only CVAs, where you see landlords being um, compromised, but uh, no other creditors, maybe perhaps the, the rating authorities, but really no other unsecured creditors being compromised in, in a CVA. And I think we've seen that then flow through to restructuring plans with the approach in Virgin Active. And I think that's obviously been you know, the major issue in terms of landlords, how they feel about CVAs and how they're used and how they're treated unfairly in the context of, um, I suppose, the restructuring that's being pursued by the by the tenant. Um, so I, I think, you know, there's, you know, clear, clearly that's uh, that's one of the key issues for landlords about the approach to only compromising the lease liabilities and, uh, you know, 
at least in the context of the CBA, not the broader restructuring, leaving other creditors unaffected. Yeah, and and sort of the the sort of notable examples, I guess, in of these landlord only CVAs are sort of Pizza Express, New Look, Clark's, Shoes, Cafe Nero, and they've all been challenged in one way or another. And I know Julie that you've been um, very busy poring over the decisions that have just come out of the court in New Look and Regis, which was the supercut hairdressers. Is there anything that landlords can take from that? Any glimmer of hope in these? Um, decisions um, or is it very much still landlords are just going to have to take what's coming at them? I think there's at least a, a couple uh, of points that um, that landlords that, that support landlords uh, position at least in, in looking at the terms of the CVA because as we've seen in the Regis decision where the company does give preferential treatment to its shareholders or if it was subordinated creditors then that will be unfairly prejudicial unless there's really um, genuine justification for that well in Regis there wasn't Um, and so the preferential treatment that was given to uh, their shareholder was um, considered to be unfairly prejudicial and we saw the CVA was revoked so I think companies will have to be think very carefully about how they're treating um, their you know uh, creditors and uh, the particular their members. Um, One of the uh, the, the other one of the other major points I think to come out of the decisions is the comments of the judge about vote swamping. So whilst the court said it wasn't inherently unfair, where the uh, CVA is approved by the votes of those creditors who are unaffected, unimpaired creditors voting it through, um, it is a highly relevant factor. And I think the important words that the judge used was that there would be, um, you know, strong reason to conclude it was unfairly prejudicial if the CVA was only achieved by the votes of unaffected creditors. Now, it's always going to depend on the facts, but I think that at least means, again, that the, um, you know, that there are grounds for landlords to look at how the voting plays out in a CVA to, to, to consider whether or not there might be grounds to challenge. I think we um, we also know that at least at the moment, subject to an appeal in New Look, that the rewriting of leases is more or less allowed, providing the company gives the landlords uh, effectively a break option. Um, and there are various issues around how that might be exercised and so on. But I think um, as long as a break option is given, which is as, as at least as good as compensation as the landlord would get in the vertical comparator, so administration or liquidation typically, then the, the rewriting of leases is something that the courts basically said is between landlords and tenants uh, as um, a sort of market uh, commercial a commercial decision. Essentially, Julie, what you're saying is the court saying landlords vote with your feet rather than you know the CVA is almost a done deal. And if, if you don't like it, you have to vote with your feet and rely on your break rights. A- absolutely. And I think that's the interesting point, because I think landlords are being pushed mm. in the context of the outcome of these cases, that that is what they'll be seriously looking at. And I think in particular, because we know um, from many, many um, landlords um, that they have, you, you know, exercised their break option rights and found that then the company comes back to them and offers them better terms than the CVA. Um, offers them sometimes contractual rent or even more than contractual rent. And I think that's, you know, really, um, uh, you know, frustrating landlords about the whole process. 
And it's interesting, actually, I think the BPF is um, trying to collect evidence on that point, isn't it? Because it sort of um, calls into question the whole purpose of driving through a CVA if you then um, landlords vote with their feet and then get better terms. Yes, that's right. And, you know, I mean, we all know the legislation is there to support the rescue culture and that that is needed. But I think it's about the, the use or abuse that um, of CVAs that landlords feel that uh, is driving this, uh, you know, review of the situation. Yeah. And so um, at the moment, obviously, uh, it's, it's continued to to challenge the CVAs as you, I guess, holding um tenants to account and as people try and sort of push the boundaries of what can be uh, driven through in a CVA I guess we'll, we'll, we'll see challenges come through when new rights or powers are exercised I guess. I was going to turn um, to Glenn if I may um, so last year I guess in, in your area of practice the biggest um, shake-up with the uh, the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act coming through and introducing some new um, new powers as such in your world and, and in particular restructuring plans. Um, I was going to just, you know, ask one, you know, what's, what's the sort of thought, you know, the thoughts and are we going to see more of more rights under the uh, Corporate Insolvency Governance, Governance Act being exercised? And then, Glenn, if you can sort of talk us through what is a restructuring plan and why do we think these are going to be seen a little bit more? Yeah, sure. It probably makes sense, Danny, if I start with that um, second point uh, first, just to explain what a restructuring plan is. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, a bit like a CVA. It's a, it's another formal process by which a company in financial difficulty uh, can seek to force a compromise on its creditors or certain classes of its uh, creditors. Uh, and as you've alluded to, it was introduced into law last June by the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act, uh, as a new part 26a to the uh, to the Companies Act. Uh, and just like a CVA, it enables a company that's experiencing financial difficulty to uh, put forward a compromise or arrangement to eliminate or reduce the effect of the uh, financial difficulties and to make that binding on its creditors or certain classes of creditors by obtaining support from a sufficient majority of each uh, affected of each affected class. Um, but there are some uh, important differences between uh, a restructuring plan uh, and a CVA. Um, probably um, the, the first big difference is that um, there's much more court involvement in a restructuring plan uh, process. With a CVA, although the CVA proposal must be filed at court before it's put to creditors, uh, the court doesn't really get involved in the process. It's not reviewing the terms of the CVA. And it typically only looks at um, the CVA and has an active role in the CVA process if it's challenged within the 28-day challenge period uh, after it's been approved by the creditors. Whereas with the restructuring plan, um, there are two court hearings at which the court does play uh, an active role. The first of those is uh, a convening hearing at which the court must approve the classes of creditors who will be asked to vote on the plan and the convening of the meetings uh, of those classes. Uh, and the creditors whose claims are to be compromised must be split into uh, different classes if their interests are so dissimilar that they cannot be expected to sensibly consult together with a view to their common interest. Uh, and then there must be separate meetings of each affected class at which they can vote on whether or not to approve the plan. 
rather than there being a single meeting of creditors um, and a single vote like there is uh, in a CVA scenario. So for the plan to be approved, it, it's necessary to obtain approval from at least 75% by value of the creditors voting uh, in each of those classes. Uh, and then the second uh, court hearing is what's known as the sanction hearing, and that's where the court's asked to confirm the plan if it's been approved by the requisite majority in each class. Uh, and in doing so, the court will um, consider whether the plan is um, just and equitable. Uh, but the second uh, key difference between a, a plan uh, and a CVA, which is really probably the most powerful feature of the, the new restructuring plan procedure, uh, is the court is that the court does have a discretion to uh, approve a plan, even where one or more of the creditor classes doesn't approve it. Uh, and this is the so-called cross-class cram-down mechanism, uh, which is a, a very debtor-friendly feature of the, the new plan um, procedure. Uh, and that enables the court to uh, elect to cram down the dissenting classes uh, of creditor if it's satisfied that, uh, first of all, uh, the dissenting class or classes um, will not be in a worse position than in the relevant alternative. Uh, and that's the, the most likely outcome for the company if the plan's not approved. Uh, and secondly, it's got to be satisfied that an approving class uh, would receive a payment or have a genuine economic interest in the company uh, in the uh, relevant alternative. And um, in terms of what this what this means for landlords, um, this is what we saw um, happen actually in the Virgin Active case recently. In that case, uh, the landlords had been split into separate classes uh, according to the differing treatment uh, that each class would receive under the plan. Uh, and in actual fact, multiple classes of landlords voted against the plan. Uh, but notwithstanding that, at the sanction hearing, the court was persuaded uh, by the company to exercise its discretion to, to cram down those classes, um, even though they'd voted against. Uh, and that was on the basis that uh, the court was satisfied that they would indeed be in a better position uh, than in the relevant alternative of an administration. Yeah, it's been quite interesting, hasn't it, that, um, you know, we we talked um, last year. I remember when um, when this all came out, whether we'd start to see restructuring plans, um, mm. sort of targeting the landlords, um, sort mm. of tenant companies, and you know they are a lot more expensive than CVAs. Um, mm. And but I guess the sort of balancing act that. I guess from an insolvency practitioner's point of view that's going on now and, and from a tenant's point of view is there's so many challenges to these CVA landlords that a legal challenge is expensive and brings with it uncertainty versus a restructuring plan which is expensive but if you get it through you have the certainty from the get-go. Yeah uh, I, I think that's right and I think um, that is what um, a lot of um, tenants who are thinking about doing a restructuring, I think that's exactly what what they will be weighing up in order to um, determine which way to go. Uh, and I think one of the other things that um, will be a, a highly relevant consideration is just um, the degree of arrears that may have built up uh, during the pandemic, um, which um, potentially gives landlords um, uh, who are asked to vote on a CVA, you know, significant voting power and voting power that they wouldn't necessarily have had in a pre-pandemic um, CVA. And I think for for tenant groups who consider that the landlords, you know, would have um, uh, a very strong voting leverage in the CVA scenario as a result of those um, arrears, I think they're more likely to, to think about using a, a restructuring plan 
where they can uh, avail of the cross-class cram-down in circumstances where the landlords um, do vote against. Yeah, it's actually quite an interesting point you make there because um, so all the CBAs that came forward, one of the sort of characteristics of most of the CBAs that came forward before the pandemic were that all the, you know, they were not indebted to landlords. Um, it was more about managing the rent exposure going forward as opposed to a significant pile of arrears. And we all know that there are multiple tenants out there who have got significant arrear piles um, at the moment. Mm. So, yeah, interesting point. Julie, let me turn to you and, and particularly looking at it from a, a real estate and landlord um, aspect. Now, I know that you followed the Virgin Active decision and, and sat through all of the hearings, and including the fact that they sat on a bank holiday. Um, what do you take away from, from the Virgin Active decision, which is essentially the first restructuring plan for landlords, and we've now got NCP going through the, the court system? What do you take away from that and what do you think it's going to mean for landlords? Yes, it wasn't uh, wasn't my favourite bank holiday, but um, there we go. It was a very interesting <laughs> case and it was very interesting to, to listen to um, the full hearing. Uh, I think the key thing um, that I would take away from it was it's very, very difficult for landlords where um you look at the relevant alternative. So is it administration? What type of administration? Is it liquidation, et cetera? And where does the value break? So, you know, what when you look at the priority of creditors, are landlords going to get any distribution? And effectively, when they're not, as was the position in Virgin Active, where the, the landlord creditors were out of the money, that meant the conditions for the cross-class cramdown that Glenn's talked about were satisfi- were satisfied. They wouldn't be worse off in the plan than under the relevant alternative. And I think the other thing that went with that was when the court was considering exercise of a, of um, its discretion in relation to sanction, where creditors are out of the money, then the court was basically, you know, the objections of the landlords carried little to no weight. Um, and I think that makes it very, very difficult for landlords to challenge. And I think complaints by landlords about how the what was called the restructuring surplus, so the benefits of the restructuring, how that was done, who it was given to, who would benefit. Again, the court was effectively, um, well, you're out of the money. It's for the creditors who are in the money who can effectively make that decision with the company. And if they've decided to give something to the members, um, in this case, they, you know, obviously looked at the contribution being for the, of the new money by the the members of the company. But I think just bringing all that together, my my key um, point would be that it's going to be very difficult for landlords unless they can establish that the relevant alternative that they would be in the money and there is differential treatment and there are real grounds for challenging that sort of the the you know. The, the, that's going to be quite difficult, that. isn't it? To, to how 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 is a landlord going to have? How can it go about showing what a, an alternative, a credible alternative is? Um, because presumably, and I think that was one of the features of Virgin. It was what information is available to allow landlords to even mount a, a, a case on that. Is it not? It's extremely difficult. I agree. And um, one of the big issues was around the whole lack of disclosure of information. And actually, whilst there was masses of information provided, it was the lack of the, the critical information landlords needed to uh, uh, obtain their own valuations 
to yeah. challenge the evidence that was being put forward by the companies in relation to um, the relevant alternative and 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 so on. And I think it is something that, you know, timing is an issue, but landlords are going to have to really think carefully about in terms of what is the critical information they need and how they can sort of put their case together very quickly and concisely to hone in only on the documents that are truly critical for them to be able to produce some evidence of valuation reports uh, and likewise. But I, I totally agree. I think it's going to be an extremely difficult thing for landlords to do. But um, if, if there's serious question marks about the plan and about the relevant alternative put forward by the company, that has to be looked at and it has to be tested with the relevant expert evidence. So... I guess to sort of wrapping up, where where do you think we're going next? Is this going to be more insolvencies and more challenges? Is it going to be you know, landlords just walking away from tenants, um, exercising break rights? Um, Julie, where do you think um, where do you think this will go? Well, I think there's there's obviously potential appeal in New Look, um, and there's other cases in the pipeline as well. So I think the decisions in other CVA challenges will be interesting. Um, there may be further challenges, but clearly costs and risk, litigation risk are going to be big issues now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think actually, for me, um, the, the landlords, I do think, will consider much more closely exercise of termination rights because they may may be prepared to sort of play that Russian roulette of exercising um, the break right and taking the property back. Um, yeah. Even if they don't have somebody lined up, whether that's, you know, they go to market and they they try or the the tenant comes back and offers more. But they've seen that happen time and time again. And I think that they will, you know, given the, the current state of play around CVAs and plans, I think that, you know, that is that is where the landlord can take some control. Yeah, because if I guess if a number of if sufficient landlords um, exercise their breaks all of a sudden the sort of plan that the tenant companies have and and how they they forecasting is called into question because um landlords have you know i think as one of the judges said voted with their feet it becomes a more cost effective way for landlords to do it but you have to be able to take be in a position to take the rental hit don't you and have a void and everything that comes with that Absolutely. And I think it might be, you know, there's, you know, the larger, the the larger landlords, the funds, etc, they might, they might be prepared to to take that punt. But it's a very different position for sort of, you know, a single unit landlord or or smaller landlords. But absolutely, um, I, I think that that is, that is what's going to happen in terms of the approach. And Glenn, what about you? What do you think lies ahead? Yeah, I think, um, uh, everything that Julia said, I, I would tend to agree with. I think it's um, it's a very fine line, isn't it? Because um, you know, if you're in a landlord's shoes, uh, you don't necessarily want to be um, biting off your nose to spite your face. I think you do need to really think quite carefully about what the the consequences of you know of exercising that break right uh, might be, uh, and whether that um, alternative is going to be uh, better or or worse for you. Um, and that will, you know, continue to be a difficult decision and one that, um, you know, each landlord needs to weigh up very carefully uh, according to its own uh, particular circumstances. Um, but I think the other thing um, worth mentioning, um, just to look out for on the horizon, uh, really is just circling back to the um, Corporate Insolvency and um, Governance Act uh, that was mentioned, because 
um, it wasn't just the new restructuring plan procedure that came in with that. There was also um, a new moratorium process that was introduced um, at the same time. Uh, and it's not a procedure that we have seen um, used much at all in practice yet. But I think that's probably because uh, of these other government measures, the temporary measures that have been in place, the moratorium on forfeiture action for non-payment of rent and the, the restrictions on winding up petitions that we've um, uh, mentioned earlier in this uh, podcast. Uh, but I think as those um, me measures um, come to an end, there is, um, you know, there are going to be more tenants looking at actually deploying this new moratorium uh, procedure as well. It's a process that can be deployed to provide a breathing space to a company that's unable to pay its debts, uh, but which is um, likely to be rescued as a going concern if it can have uh, the breathing space that the moratorium um, will will bring. Um, so I think um, landlords should just be uh, on the lookout uh, for that one as well. The good news uh, about that particular moratorium compared to the ones that are in place at the moment um, uh, on a blanket basis is that um, any particular tenant company that um, avails of, of the moratorium um, it's a requirement uh, that they must be able to pay their moratorium debts as they fall due. Um, so uh, at least if that process is availed of by a tenant, then the, there should be um, an expectation that the rent during the moratorium period uh, will be paid as a condition of the uh, of the tenant staying in that process. Um, but uh, it would um, it would give the tenant uh, a breathing space uh, from enforcement action in relation to. Uh, you know, all the arrears that might have built up uh, pre-moratorium. Pre no, thanks, Glenn. Yes, it's a, a valid point you make there. I guess once we see the way that the government starts to lift the, the measures it has in place, I'm sure that the uh, the moratorium will, will probably play a greater role um, in sort of managing landlord and tenant relationships as we, as we go forward. Um, Glenn, Julie, thanks so much for, for joining us today on the Real Deal podcast. And to everybody that's listened, please don't forget to subscribe by your um, usual podcast store and uh, join us for the next one. Thank you. Thank you.